Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Let's face it, indoor agriculture consumes massive amounts of energy. Between cooling high-intensity grow lights and regulating climate in large facilities, electric bills can run a successful grow operation into the red. If this sounds familiar, I can tell you that you need a powerful climate control system that won't drain your green. I'm Eric Riccardi with Blue Mountain Energy. Our state-of-the-art HVAC systems are powered by natural gas and propane, which means you can reduce your electricity use by as much as 80% and get your grow operation back in the black and maximize your growing space. Visit BlueMountainEnergy.com to schedule your free energy assessment and see how Blue Mountain Energy can put that green back in your pocket. And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm happy you could join us. Ever since California legalized cannabis for medical use in 1996, mom and pop entrepreneurs have been developing innovative formulations and crossbreeding cultivars to create new cannabinoid profiles targeting a variety of medical conditions. As the industry was operating legally in the state, despite the vexing federal prohibition, these innovators had a unique opportunity to name their new varietals, which publications like Leafly would eventually catalog, along with each strain's cannabinoid and terpene profiles, potency, and intended medical effect. One of the more notable was Charlotte's Web, which was developed in Colorado by the Stanley Brothers, specifically for a pediatric epilepsy patient named, well, you guessed it, Charlotte. At the time, legal cannabis was limited to only a handful of states, so the threat of competition by large pharmaceutical companies or other outside influencers was practically non-existent, or so it seemed. So when cannabis industry pioneer Steve D'Angelo began warning entrepreneurs and innovators about the importance of protecting everything they create decades ago, not everyone paid attention. But during a keynote address at an early industry event, he urged stakeholders to get lawyers on board as a first order of business. And he said, if you don't have that relationship with a good IP attorney, you're going to make a whole lot of other people very rich. As it turns out, he was right. The sad truth is that there were companies working quietly behind the scenes, developing their own cannabis-based drugs and locking down patents. And while the Stanley Brothers were first on the market with a strain of CBD they developed to treat a little girl's epilepsy, GW Pharmaceuticals later became the first to receive FDA approval for the use of CBD for treating epilepsy, which basically rendered the development and sale of all other CBD products intended for medical use off limits. They've since filed nearly a dozen patents, and most of those will no doubt overlap with earlier innovations developed by entrepreneurs who failed to heed Steve D'Angelo's advice. 
Now, fortunately for the Stanley brothers, Charlotte's Web survived without threat of infringement, but mostly because they sought legal support from an experienced patent attorney. And lucky for us, that attorney is here to explain how cannabis innovators can best protect themselves and their intellectual property in this ever more competitive market. David Pestolsky, a partner at Gerhardt Law, is a registered patent and intellectual property attorney with more than 17 years experience in the cannabis IP space. His practice is focused on assisting inventors, creatives, entrepreneurs, and companies in protecting, enforcing, and monetizing their intellectual property. He's also a professor at Temple University and Parsons School of Design, where he teaches master-level students about IP, ethics, and other regulatory considerations in business ventures and product design. He's also the current Continuing Legal Education Officer at the American Bar Association Section of Intellectual Property Law and founder of their International Action Group and editor of their monthly newsletter. David is a frequent speaker and author on intellectual property issues pertaining to emerging technologies and has advised clients in the cannabis sector for more than a decade. I should note he will also be speaking at the upcoming CBD Expo in Las Vegas this coming weekend. And today he's joining us from Israel, where he's been living. David, thank you so much for joining me. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing in Israel. Well, one, thank you for having me. Israel is great. Uh, I spend a lot of time here, mostly related to intellectual property and cannabis. And uh, it's it's a great country. I, everybody in the world should visit it for sure. There's something here for everyone. It's uh, definitely startup nation and that provides an energy that I've, I've not seen anywhere else in the world. So it's been pretty cool and pretty fun. That's great. And I know that everywhere in Israel has been a lot more progressive in terms of the cannabis research and everything else. So it's, it's definitely a place to visit if people have an interest in that. Um, I know that they do have a lot of events there. But before um, we delve into the topic of, of patents when it pertains to cannabis, give me a little bit of background and tell me how did you get into the space? Yeah, it's actually a really interesting story. I've been uh, practicing IP uh, attorney, an intellectual property attorney, a patent attorney, a trademark attorney for about uh, almost 20 years. And about uh, 10 years ago, I decided to leave big companies and kind of devote my life to entrepreneurs. And I started working at a kind of regional firm in New Jersey. And I decided that one of the entrepreneurial things I should do is create events for entrepreneurs. So, you know, the firm would host these meetups. So the meetup was a brand new thing back then. It was going back about 10 years now, maybe even 11 years. And so my firm, through me, as part of an entrepreneurial effort, because I was devoting my life to entrepreneurs and trying to help, you know, startups and 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 small companies, independent inventors, and and emerging technology companies. We hosted a meetup, was the patentability of cannabis. At the time, many states were legalizing medical marijuana. Some states were even legalizing recreational marijuana around the world. It was getting attention. 
and 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 so of course startups were popping up and i decided well let's let's have a meetup and let's do a kind of educational session to entrepreneurs and so i hosted a meetup the content of which was all about the patentability of cannabis and cbd and other related compounds that that are found in cannabis and um, it was a great presentation. Maybe about 100 people came. It was free. And at the end of the presentation, somebody comes up to me and introduces himself as a doctor and says that uh, for the last two, three years, he's been taking his daughter, who has been suffering from leukemia, to Colorado to camp out um, outside of the facility where they were, where they were making Charlotte's Web, which was, I'm sure, sure people in the, in the industry know, a CBD oil, um, at the time, very small, new company started by the Stanley Brothers. And he's like, I think you really have to talk to these guys. I happen to know the marketing director. Maybe I can make an introduction. And, um, I found myself literally on a plane to Colorado to meet with them just a few weeks later and um, was fortunate enough to kind of work with them to uh, educate them on the protectability of what they were creating in Charlotte's Web and their extraction process and all the machinery and stuff like that because my background is in chemistry as a patent attorney. So I was able to kind of guide them through the patent process. I also helped them on like trademarks as well and brand enforcement, but it was, it was, it was, it was amazing because I got to see the company, I was with the company to grow and kind of launch into different countries and, you know, then which, which forced me to understand the landscape of regulatory and ethical issues in going into another country, not from the United States, as well as the minefield of the United States, because the regulations were so different and ever changing. And so I was with them for many years, and um, I, I, about a few years ago, they actually moved to another firm, which was great for me because it allowed me now to, uh, it kind of freed me up to work with other companies because if, if, if you're a lawyer, you can't take on a client that's in conflict to your current client. And so if you're representing a company like the Stanley Brothers who make Charlotte's Web, they're a big company. So it was hard to take on other companies, especially startups and entrepreneurs. So once they left me, um, I was able to kind of really start to, you know, gather more and more, more clients in this space. Um, so yeah, it, it, and, and the reason why the, the, the doctor came up to me was because I had just lost my sister to leukemia. And it, somehow it came out during the presentation I don't remember why something, I think she was like prescribed the legal medicinal marijuana. So I think he just felt this kind of kinship and came up with me. So it was all fortuitous. Um, and uh, it's so, so I've been in this space for about 12 years. And uh, I can tell you the presentation that I gave 11 years ago is a very different type of uh, presentation that I would give today, let's say. So it's changed, the field has changed so much in terms of patentability and uh, trademarkability of uh, such brands. But yeah, that's kind of how it happened. I think my sister was looking down on me, to be perfectly honest. Wow. I'm so sorry about your sister. But, you know, it was, it was interesting because back then, really, the only legal means to acquire any cannabis whatsoever for treatment was the Marinol. Yes. Um, and it was one of the very first, but it wasn't exactly like the plant molecule. It had a lot of alterations to it, which sure. is what made it legal. And, you know, it was unfortunate because I think a lot of people could have benefited from the whole plant as opposed to just an, ex, you know, a, a, a chemical 
identical twin or, you know, somewhat identical twin to THC. Yeah. But um, that's an interesting story, though. And I think that a lot of people got into that because of family members who had had success using cannabis and all of that. But you also, uh, what you were talking about a moment ago, it it makes sense that things are so different now. Um, The regulatory environment is just so different now than, you know, 11 years ago. So it all comes full circle, though, and I'm looking forward to a time when we don't have to worry about the legality of all of this. But when you started picking up other clients, let's say someone comes to you and they say that they've cloned and spliced a couple of cultivars and they want to make a, a different breed that hasn't really been thought of before that, say, concentrates on more of one cannabinoid over another and let's say that they're in the industry, they've been in the industry, but now they're looking to protect themselves and really don't know where to start. What do you tell people like that? What do you tell growers? Yeah, it's a real, so it's not so, so, so what I tell them is not just the growers, but it's the entrepreneurs who created a device for, you know, smoking. It's, you know, the people that are creating apps to locate, you know, different, it's everything. It's, it's, it's based in chemistry. It's based in computer science. But overall, and it's based in genetics, it's all of that, but I tell them all the same thing. And it's, it's something that I think is, that, that is so important and something that this industry, like many other emerging technology industries, lack, which is the education and the empowerment that they need in order to protect themselves. So I'll kind of unpack that a little bit. If somebody comes to me, a grower, and has a new genetic or, and you know, has created a new uh, 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 strain or something like that, or, or has created a, something that they, that they think is innovative and novel, I usually say to them, well, two things. One, you know, we should probably do a, a search, a patent search, to see if somebody else anywhere else in the world, not just in the country where you happen to have discovered this or invented this, because that matters. If somebody has filed a patent, whether you want to file a patent or not, but if somebody has filed a patent on something similar to yours, even even the exact same thing as you in South Africa, and you're coming to me in the United States, well, we need to know that because the United States, when you will file, will see what we're seeing and we'll see that South African patent application that has something similar to yours or the same thing as yours. And we'll say, well, sorry, you didn't invent it. And so it's really important, the education of doing a patent search, again, not, not, not doing a patent search so you file a patent, but doing a patent search so you know that you have the clearance to move forward in your endeavors is key. I can't tell you how many times I have seen over the last 10 years, how many ideas or even more than ideas, people that have actually taken steps to do things and create processes and work with formulators and work with scientists that what they're doing has already been discovered, meaning it's already been invented. It's already been, it's already been filed with the patent office. That's the number one thing I tell them. And I think that's the lack of education. I think in an emerging technology field is that everybody thinks that what they have might be so obvious or based on their own knowledge is so new that they're going to continue moving forward and spending money on research and development. And really 
they could have maybe done the search earlier and then if something was there, it's not the end of the story, it's just maybe they can go in a different direction, slightly different direction. <laughs> so that's, that's a really important part is doing the patent search. And then the, 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 the second, I think the, the, the most important factor in this, besides the lack of education, is that there are very unique rules in the United States. We are like any other country. We have, we have very unique patent laws and they're pretty new and they, they change in, in like around 2013 after 250 years. And now in the United States, if you have made a sale of your product or again, so talking to this grower, if the, if it, in, in the hypothetical, if the grower comes to me and has already maybe created something that he sold or he's created something that he's offered to sell and now he's coming to me, right? Now he's coming to say, okay, now I want to protect it because that happens all the time, right? Because there's this, people are just kind of researching, developing without any kind of, I mean, people have knowledge of what's going on around them, but they don't really have maybe knowledge of, what's, of, of what the patentability is or what has been filed before them. So in this hypothetical, he's kind of, you know, made some sales or offered to sell it or talk to people about it. Like he's talked to investors and, you know, maybe he's done this without a non-disclosure agreement. Maybe he's talked to friends and family. He's literally talked about the idea and given away some of the secret sauce or what it entails. Well, the United States has laws that say, if you do any one of those three things, if you've made a public disclosure, if you've offered to sell your product, if you've, if you've sold your product, then you only have one year, one single year to ever, ever file a patent on that which you disclosed or sold or offered to sell. And that is something people just don't realize. So I've definitely been in situations where growers, entrepreneurs, geneticists, scientists have come and said, okay, now we're ready. Now we're ready. Now, now we want to protect it. We feel like we've gotten it to a point where we can protect it or we're about to, you know, we, and, and, and then we, may, we create the timeline as to where these specific events have happened. And so many times, Snowden, I have to tell the bad news to people, to, to, tell, to say to them, sorry, you publicly disclosed this like 366 days ago right? You, 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 you missed the deadline to file a patent by one day, right? You're one day over the wow. one year mark. It's amazing. It's unbelievable how much this happens. And so, yeah, again, it's about education. It's about empowerment. It's, it's, it's why I do public speaking about this stuff to really, it's because people inadvertently give up their patent rights in the United States. Um, it's even worse in some other countries. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's amazing. I learned something new here. I had no idea that you must file a patent within a year to protect something if it's on sale. Correct. I imagine a lot of people don't know this. And I know. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> so, so what happens if someone is selling something and let's say, I don't know how often it happens, but I wonder if there are poachers out there looking for companies that are naive with, you know, uh, principals who are naive uh, in terms of patents and they don't file their patents. And then these companies swoop in, make another product that's identical to it and then file a patent for it. What happens to the person who initiated the technology? I mean, 
can that can the poacher come back later and say, well, sorry, I filed the patent on this, so you can't have it anymore? Or is there any yeah. recourse? There is a recourse. Uh, it, 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 so for exactly that's the excellent scenario that you just posed. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So let, 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 let's continue it. Okay, somebody steals it or just maybe sees it and makes an identical product. We'll, we'll use that, we'll, we're going to use that exact same scenario and then files a patent first. And then the original company that didn't know to file a patent now then maybe comes to me or another lawyer and says, hey, wait a second. You know, we were on the market. Yeah, we didn't file a patent, we didn't file a patent but we were on the market, let's say two years before this company who's now, you know, who's now advertising that they have the patent on this when really we did it first. So the recourse is tough. I mean, that you would have to, so that, that, that company that, didn't, that cho chose not to file a patent has to prove that they were really first and has, to, and has to also prove that that company didn't independently come up with it themselves, right? Because that could happen, right? The company, in, 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 your, in, in your scenario, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a poaching type of thing, right? It's like an infringement type of thing. It's like them going out and it, the second company going out and saying, ah, I'm going to take the chance or I know that they didn't file a patent and I'm going to do it. That has to be proven. But if it's proven, if you can prove that, then there is recourse because the law, the patent law does only protect the inventor, right? So inventor is an interesting word. It's a legal terminology. And in that scenario, the law in, in, in theory wouldn't protect the poacher because the poacher is not the inventor. It wouldn't protect the infringer because the infringer is not the inventor. But it's going to be up to the first company to prove that. And that might be hard, right? When you think about it, if you were this big public company, you were awesome doing sales, you know, it would, it would be hard to prove that this company, you know, maybe bought something from you and reverse engineered it. Like, I'm not, that's not impossible to do, but you'd have to prove that. It would be your burden to prove that. That's why if you had the patent, if that first company had the patent, then any sort of uh, poaching or infringement activity that postdates your filing date is, will already be assumed to have been a poaching or infringement situation. You know what I mean? But because in this hypothetical, they don't have their patent on file, then they have to, they have the added step of proving that, yeah, maybe they were in existence before, but that this second company was poaching them. So again, the law doesn't protect a stealer or a poacher or an infringer, but it'll be up to you to prove it. If you had the patent, there'll be less to prove because any, any kind of event that happens after your patent filing date would be assumed to be a poaching, infringement, or stealing activity. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that reminds me of something too that I've encountered with the USPTO, the US Patent and Trademark Office. There was an issue about a year and a half ago that I heard through the grapevine that the trademark office was was denying or not clearing uh, trademark applications that had to do with products that were specifically in the cannabis space. And their, their reasoning behind it was that, you know, this is a Schedule One substance, and so they're not going to trademark anything having to do with it. Was that ever an issue with the, with the patents? Yeah, good question. No, it's unbelievable. Even though they're both, the United States Patent and Trademark Office are both under the Department of Commerce, 
the patent office has never the patent, patent office has the United States patent office has never denied an application for reasons of legality right they 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 have never said okay we 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 we're not even going to look at your application we're not even going to look at your patent application because it because it has the word cannabis in it or it has cbd in it or might be or or, or the product that you're going to create might be a class 1 you, you know harmful substance that has never happened it, and and it's interesting the the the, the for, just like you said on the trademark side that that is not a, that, that is truth it's not a it's not a rumor right they for for many years the trademark office denied those applications but the the reason is 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 kind of um is kind of almost elementary and and and, and I'll explain it when you have a trade when when you apply for a trademark the, the trademark office, the, the first thing you have to prove, or one of the things you have to prove, is interstate commerce. Right? That is one of the requirements in the United States that you are selling your product or services across state lines. So they care about what happens between the states. And as you know, the only you know, 30 plus states in, 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 in the union have legalized the um, cannabis products to be kind of shipped across state lines. And so the trademark office, from their perspective, is like, oh, well, if it's not legal in, in all the 50 states, then how are you really selling it across state lines? And so that's the reason why they were denying things. On patents, it, patents are not, have no connection to commerce. In, 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 in the way the patent law was set up, it has no connection to commerce. That, that is a trademark thing. The, what the patents care about is that you're novel and not obvious uh, around the world and that you have really truly something unique and new. And if you can prove that, then you know, then then great, you can get a patent. Of course, you're gonna sell whatever you're patenting across state lines, but then that's for the trademark office to worry about, not for the patent office to worry about. But for many years, people wouldn't get patents because a patent and a trademark, if you want to sue someone for infringement, you have to go directly to a federal court, right? When you get a patent and trademark, these are federal rights. You're not getting a state right. You're not getting like a New York trademark. You're getting a federal U.S. trademark. You're not getting a New Jersey patent. You're getting a patent that covers all 50 states. So for many years, people would say, oh, why should I get a patent if I can't even go into a federal court? Because that's where the federal courts, that's where they're going to say, well, we don't even have the jurisdiction to rule on your federal patent that you may have gotten from the United States Patent Office because you, we, don't, we, we can't, as, as, a, as a federal court, we can't even hear the case because it involves a class one substance. So that was predominantly how it was for many years. So people were like, why should I get a patent if I can't really enforce it? All that has changed. Um, the, there have been already two cases that have been that are cannabis related regarding patent infringement and patent validity that have been uh, that that are currently under the courts now under the federal courts now and the federal courts have not dismissed it. So all this kind of regulatory change that's going on in America has trickled up to the federal court system, and now the federal courts have 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 are are in the process of listening to federal patent infringement cases which means the reason that we the reason why reason why companies never really filed patents because of that because you know 
why should I get a patent if I can't enforce it against somebody in federal court? That has been that has been somewhat eliminated. So there's really no reason not to get a patent. There's still some gray area with the trademark office as to whether you can get a trademark. Um, they they there are ways to get a a a federal trademark in the United States for a cannabis or CBD related product. It just involves some statements that you have to make as a entrepreneur about your uh, supply chain. And I can unpack that a little bit if you want. Yeah, I'd like to. First, let me ask you something, because this also raises kind of another issue with the legality. Now that the Farm Bill has made hemp legal throughout the United States, you know, a lot of people are selling CBD. And I mean, there's a whole other kettle of fish with that, because the CBD that was approved by the FDA for Epidiolex was taken out of Schedule 1, but CBD itself was not expressly removed from Schedule 1 with the passage of the farm bill, right? So without getting too much into the weeds on that, what's to protect someone who's got a CBD product if they want to go and patent their product with CBD, given the fact that the FDA does not recognize any other CBD as being a legal product except for Epidiolex, and it can only be used for that one purpose. <laughs> yeah, no, good, good question. No, so on, on the patent side, whether you're taking your CBD from hemp or, or, or something else or, or extracting it from cannabis or, 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 or doing something else to it, that, that's okay. You can, you can apply for your patent. You can get your patent examined. If it's novel, that you know, kind of what you're doing and, and kind of the way you're doing it is novel around the world, you will get your patent and you will be able to go into a federal court. That's not the issue, you'll be able to do that. What the Farm Bill has had the most uh, effect on is uh, when you apply for the trademark to sell that hemp-derived CBD that is now federally legal. That There you'll be able to, and that's exactly what I was referring to, if you can make that um, if, if you can explain to the trademark office that your CBD is derived from hemp, which is now federally legal and removed from the controlled substance list, then you'll be able to get the trademark that you in the past could not get. So that's huge. And from um, you also have to be able to make certain, there's like a new statement that the Farm Bill has kind of created in for, for people to protect their CBD or cannabis or even THC products under trademark law, under federal trademark law. So it's a, it's a pretty, it's a, it's an interesting statement. Again, most people may not be able to make, meaning most companies may not be able to make this statement, but if they can make this statement to the trademark office about their supply chain, then they will be able to potentially get a, a federal trademark and you know kind of have protection over their brand or their logo. And the statement is that the goods that they're selling contain or are derived from cannabis, right? From cannabis with a delta THC concentration of not more than 0.3% on a dry weight basis. If they can make that statement in terms of their supply chain, kind of how they're creating their product, 
then they'd be able to give it. Then, then, then they'd be able to potentially get a federal trademark. That's huge. I mean, we've come a long way in the United States. So again, I've had clients where I've, I, I've said, "Could you make the statement?" And they're like, mm, "I don't think we can." Okay, then uh, maybe we don't try for a trademark now, or maybe we try for the trademark and kind of wait until more regulatory um, decisions and guidance from the FDA, from the government the Department of Agriculture kind of, you know, trickle down. So, yeah. Very interesting. And I wonder also, are they as rigid about the intent to use? Like, let's say someone does have a THC product. They want to uh, trademark the name. They want to um, protect themselves for the future um, and file like an intent to use trademark application are they rejecting those as frequently as they reject the, the ones that are already in use because they're not interstate yet? Good, good question. They are. They're being kind of proactive about this, right? They, they know eventually that once they uh, allow your intent to use application, which triggers like a three-year period for you to start selling in interstate commerce in the United States, that you're eventually going to sell. And so why not, as a trademark office, why not protect the consumer by requiring the applicant now to confirm what, you know, kind of how the product is made or where you get your CBD from or what the THC concentration might be. So yeah, they are being pretty rigid about that. I definitely think you you cannot file a trademark application for anything in this industry without being rejected. I mean, you're going to be rejected and, and it's, and it's okay. You can be rejected. You just have, you just have to then prove your supply chain. So yes, it happens to the people that are already using their marks in commerce. And it happens to the people that are intent to use, who are, who have that intent to use their, 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 their products or goods or services in, in the market, who, who have the intent to sell their products, or goods and services. Yeah, it's happening. It's definitely happening. I don't, I, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think a company should be scared of that. Um, I mean, maybe they should be scared if they can't meet the requirements to get a trademark or make those statements because they may not have, they may not be able to get some sort of federal protection on the trademark side. Maybe they just go for the patent. But I, I think it's, um, I think it's just the learning curve that the United States trademark office is trying to impose on companies so that once this company goes global, right? When you think about, it, if you think about like patents and trademarks, this is like about it's about global. This is about global intellectual property harmonization. So the United States wants to make sure that they've crossed all their T's and dotted their I's and and forced companies that are in this field to cross their T's and dot their I's, so that when they take the United States trademark that they got here and actually go global, you know, launch into Europe or launch into India or launch into Hong Kong or launch into Colombia that they know that, that their seal of approval has, has, has that, that, that they put the company through the paces and that, that that trademark will stand up in another country where the laws might be similar or slightly different or more rigid. So it's kind of, it, you know, from, from their perspective, they're just kind of looking out for the companies that are in this field. And so I, I kind of respect it. I've learned to respect that. In the beginning, it was like annoying, like, Oh my God, just, you know, get with the program already. United States Patent Office, Trademark Office, just get with the program. You know, this is happening, this is changing, people are doing it, you know? And so this is their way of kind of getting with the program, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And then if someone is about to go global, how important is it for them to file for 
patents or trademarks in the countries in which they plan to go? Yeah, really, really good question. Um, you know, I, part of the the intellectual property process is understanding that the the entire world is what we call a territorial system, meaning if you have a patent in the United States or you have a trademark in the United States, that's your territory. You don't have protection anywhere else in the world unless you take the affirmative step within the prescribed time to take that trademark and file in another country, to take that patent and file in another country. Make no mistake, if you do not have the patent or the trademark in China or Europe or South Africa or any country, then you do not have the ability to stop someone else from doing what you're doing, making what you're making, selling what you're selling, branding the way you brand. That is intellectual property, having a patent or trademark is the entry that it basically gives you the entry into a country's, into a territory's court system where you could potentially stop someone, right? All the, the stopping of, of someone, you know, infringing you or copying you all happens in, in an actual court of law in every country in the world. So it's the only way to do it. And there's a very limited time to do it. I definitely have clients that have, you know, ha have like a patent in the United States, let's say, or filed a patent in the United States. And you only have one year from your filing date in the United States to start the international process. I've definitely, I would say the majority of companies in this space are giving up their rights to protect their inventions and brands in other countries because they usually they usually don't adhere to the deadline that they have to start their foreign filings for for a variety of reasons and probably good reasons money investment i don't know where i'm going to be i don't know where i'm going to sell i don't know what the regulatory issues are in that country okay fine but just know that if we don't file by X date, which is one year from your filing on a patent or six months from your filing on a trademark, then we may not, you, you, we, this is not, we, we're, we're going to lose that country. You're, we're not going to have protection in that country. You can still market there. You can still commercialize there. You can still sell there. But if somebody in that country creates something similar to yours, then we're back to that original scenario that we just talked about, which is, you're, you, you're, you won't have any standing to go into a court and prove that somebody poached it from you or infringed it from you or came after you because the, the country there, the courts there, would not, will not recognize your rights because you don't have the corresponding patent in that country or the trademark in that country. So it all kind of connects for sure. See, that's very interesting because you hear a lot about China, for example, poaching intellectual property from the United States, and it's usually a big complaint in the movie industry and entertainment in general, and also in manufacturing of like fine apparel and stuff sure. like that. But what you're saying, unless these movie companies or apparel companies have filed for a patent in China, then it really doesn't matter. Correct. There's no, there's the, the only way to, to, to stop anybody, to stop an infringer, whether it was intentional or not, from taking what you've made, creating what you've made, selling what you made, is to have the registered intellectual property in that corresponding country. Listen, I just to, 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 to be perfectly blunt, infringement is going to happen, right? It's going to happen. I mean, it's almost sometimes something you want to happen because it's almost like a sign of that maybe you're doing something that's reached, you know, the far East or something like that. <laughs> well, it's the right? best form of flattery. <laughs> exactly. So, so it's, it's a good problem to have. It's a, it's, 
it's a terrible problem to have, but it's a good problem to have in, 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 in some respects. But yeah, there is definitely infringement is going to happen. And just because you actually take a lawyer's advice and actually file the patents in all the countries that you think you're going to be infringed doesn't mean it's just going to stop, right? You literally have to affirmatively go after those people, right? I mean, the patent and trademark are supposed to be a deterrent factor to infringers in that country, but people are nefarious and evil and it's going to happen and people are going to do it. You just have to have the tools to fight them. And if you don't have those tools, it will be a really, really hard fight. Second, I want to, I want to, I want to with the world of cannabis, I, I, I've, we, I, I've been doing this for about 20 years. So I've seen some emerging technologies, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, 3D printing. Cannabis falls right in there, right? These are, these are, um, th these are regulatory and ethical issues that are forming all around the world. Intellectual properties trying to catch up with innovation. It's a standard thing that we've seen in history. And with all emerging technologies, there will be infringement. It's going to happen because there is so much uh, um, there is so much kind of unknown for the companies that are getting involved in this, like what I should do or what I shouldn't do, where I should go, where I shouldn't go, where should I protect, what I what what do I do? So it's going to happen. But I think as an industry, as, as the cannabis industry kind of emerges and kind of comes out of its shell, and we're in the middle of that now, it's happening right now, it's so important that these types of scenarios of infringement, of enforcement in other countries, of people coming into the United States with, you know, that, that you know, like, because it, we were just talking about the United States going to another country, but there are innovators that are doing things like in Israel or China or Hong Kong and trying to come into this country. And so it's so important that we, as an industry, embrace this and kind of be proactive about this, not reactionary about this, because being reactionary about these types of situations, it's probably too late at that point, right? We have to be proactive about that. And I get it. It means, oh my God, spending more money and I have to protect myself. But like, what, what, this is how we grow as an industry. This is why you have service providers that are in it with you, right? We're in it with you, not just lawyers and accountants, everybody. We're all in it with you. We're all kind of putting ourselves out there to change things, right? And so it's not just going to be about the bottom dollar. It's going to be about like how we push things forward. You know, I, 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 I'm pretty passionate about this, uh, the, 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 this subject matter, regardless of what kind of industry we're talking about, because I've seen how it trickles down in a bad way where people just kind of lose their rights and can't take back something that they thought they should have done because they didn't have the money to do it or they didn't have the, they lacked the education to do it. It's a shame. And so it is a yeah. shame. It really is. So this industry really did get its start though, with a lot of uh, grassroots advocacy, but um, in in the in the very beginnings of this, and now even still, it's a mom and pop operation in a lot of respects because it is so new and everybody's sort of there's a big learning curve for everyone. But there are a lot of people who start out because they're passionate about it. They've got small companies. They don't have a lot of resources. They don't have the big, you know, corporate dollars coming in with the big Wall Street investors investing in their company because they're just not knowledgeable about that aspect of business because they've just been doing this thing that they love out of a passion for something that they think will change the world. Right. So 
a lot of these people do not have the resources to go and hire a legal team to work on patents. They've got brilliant ideas and they've got brilliant products that they're putting out there. But I mean, if they can't, you know, they don't have the means to really support uh, protecting themselves this way, how, how else can they protect themselves? And are there legal advocacy groups that will usher them through this or help them finance it? Or how do people proceed? Because it's a really important thing that they need to do. Yeah, there's a, there's a few strategies I think companies can adopt, small, large, mom and pop for sure. So a few things. One, if you aren't, if you're, the first thing you have to do is before you start selling, uh, which is what mom and pop, which is what everybody wants to do because it brings in income that you can then hire a legal team or an accountant or a regulatory advisor or a lobbyist or something like that. Until you get to that point, you need to lock it down. You need to keep it secret. You cannot keep it public. You can talk to people about it, but they need to sign NDAs, right? Because if you ever wanted to protect from a patent perspective, lock it down. If nothing is public, again, this is pre-sale, but if nothing is public, then your year hasn't started. Everybody's under NDA. And yes, I know there are people that don't want to sign NDAs, but you have to make that, you have to make that gut decision whether you want to not get the NDA and then have the patent clock stick ticking or get everybody to sign an NDA lock it down and then you kind of kind of continue be able to still, you know, kind of, you know, file a patent once you start selling. Okay, now let's let let so so there's that. So definitely lock it down, keep it keep it secret. There are definitely people that you know can do that, but now they have to start selling because they know that the sale is going to bring them in income to hire some of the kind of some of the resources and service providers they need. Then you got to you have to watch the clock for sure. You have to be you have to you have to be care, you have to understand the risks of that, which we talked about, which is maybe somebody seeing it and taking the and kind of stealing it from you and taking the chance you didn't file a patent and filing it first. And yes, that's not a situation the law protects, but you know that's the risk you're willing to take because you'll be able to hopefully prove it later. Um, but you know, as a company, as a small as mom and pop, you need to really kind of watch your sales. So if you knew you sold on January 26, 2020 know that you have until 20, January 26, 2021 to protect yourself. Um, there are legal advo- advocacy groups in the world of intellectual property. Um, they're usually kind of pro bono programs. Every state in the union has them. You have to meet an income threshold and it's for, you, you have to be like a little bit above poverty. I think it's maybe twice poverty. So if poverty level of income is like $18,000 a year or something like that, you have to make less than like $36,000 a year. Some states require you make less than $50,000 a year as an individual, right? Because if you're a mom and pop, you may, that's what it's going to be based on. So there are, there are programs out there that could potentially help you with pro bono services. And there are also, and then there are also service providers who are kind of in it for other reasons than making money. So maybe can work with you to like, you know, like payment plans and deferred fees and fixed fees. There's all sorts of interesting providers out there. 
There are also interesting providers that have, um, that have networks to investors. So kind of getting out and going to conferences and kind of engaging the community, the advocacy community, the regulatory community, that doesn't cost any money to kind of volunteer your services, might connect you to someone that may know an investor who's more like an angel or pre-seed or somebody that can kind of come in a little bit earlier than like a VC or something like that that could help you on your way. So there are, there definitely people do it. I, I've seen it. Definitely people do it. Um, but I think we are, we, we're definitely at a, we're, we're definitely, uh, I think we are approaching the rapture soon in the, in, in, in this industry for sure. I do believe that uh, the cream will probably rise to the top. And by that, I mean, if you can somehow figure out some of the obstacles that you just mentioned, Snowden, and try to, um, uh, kind of uh, uh, form, formalize your business and maybe have a little investment, maybe have some sort of intellectual property or the ability to file intellectual property within the prescribed timelines that if you can do, if you can achieve those things, I do believe that this industry will see the emergence of those types of companies or you know mom and pops that have kind of gotten their act together that will be the cream that rises at the top and all the fly-by nights because there are a lot of fly-by nights with every emerging technology there's people in it just to get in and out in and out in and out they don't even care about anything else right they just want to make money now and out which god bless them we everybody should do that to some extent but there are people who want to be, who want to endure, and who want to change, and who want to, who, who want to, you know, be part of legislation change, and you know, lobbying and advocacy, and you know, they're doing it for the right reason, and always want to want that to be in their DNA all the time. Great, those people should also somehow try to, you know, cre cre create this um, this environment or this uh, company culture that meets all of the requirements that we were just talking about, requirements that meets all the kind of desires we're talking about, because they will be the cream that rises to the top, I believe, that, that I, I kind of think that's kind of where we're going. Yeah, no, really good advice. And um, if you mentioned something about the NDAs, which... I really hadn't considered. I mean, there are people who are like, what, you don't trust me? You want me to sign in it and what? You know, and there's really a legal reason to always have an NDA and it has more to do with their protected rights from a legal standpoint than it does the trust of the individual that they're speaking with. That's very interesting. Yes, I, I say it all the time. I say, if, if somebody says that to you, if you're about to give an NDA to someone, even if it's an investor, a VC, they're notorious, like my, my friend, we are doing this not because we don't trust you. We're doing this to safeguard the ability to file for a patent in the future. That they'll respect. That they'll understand, right? Because they're going to be investing, hopefully, in a company that has some sort of intellectual property. And nothing to do with it has everything to do with trust, but it has to do also with this this requirement that the United States has. Yes. So yes, very well said. Yes. Thank you. So yeah, I <laughs> there there are just so many nuances in the law that people just don't pay attention to until they're faced with a lawsuit or until they have to file a lawsuit against someone. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. So, well, this is all really good information. And, you know, before we start winding down, are there any other points of interest that you think that our audience might like to know or might need to know really in this regard? 
Yeah, I would say I, uh, there is, um, I think there's this tendency in this field. Um, it's not a, really a criticism. Again, it happens in most fields where the majority of companies believe that what they truly have might be really, really, really novel or might not be something that they even think is worth protecting. Like there's always that, oh, it's so obvious. Like, uh, you know, I'm not going to protect it because like it's so obvious. Like somebody can just figure it out. But I'm a big believer in like at least consult with, at least consult, doesn't cost money to consult with an attorney or, or, or somebody. Um, well, you should definitely find people that don't charge you for consultation. We'll put it that way. But there are people like that, including myself, right? They, they at least talk to someone and kind of delve into a little bit because that what you think has already been protected or that which you think is so obvious that how can somebody protect that or that which you think is so um so kind of run of the mill that you know there's no way you're going to get protection on it like nine times out of ten that's wrong i mean i've seen it all the time not just in not just in cannabis the most obvious i the the, the most the the most ideas that the entrepreneur or the company believes is the most obvious turns out to be something that hasn't already been filed with the patent office. And so you can be the first to do that. And so we are in an exciting field. Yes, a lot of companies are filing. It's happening all over the world, but there's still a lot of great avenues to explore in the world of intellectual property and don't make that decision on your own definitely consult with someone, hopefully a patent or trademark attorney, and let them give you that clearance. You don't have to file anything, but at least let them give you the clearance that you could file, that what you have hasn't been filed, that what you thought was obvious is truly unique and novel and has not been filed before. Very good advice. And um, yeah, and I mean, would, would speaking to an attorney about an emerging technology count as your start time for the year or is that protected under like client uh, privileged? Uh, yeah, excellent question. There are very few people in this world that don't require NDAs, attorney, right? Attorney client privilege, doctors, you know, doctor, patient, psychiatrist, rabbis, priests, and your spouse, right? Marital privilege. Anybody outside of those people need an NDA, even your child, even your okay. grandmother, right? There's no there's no grandmother, son, there's no grandmother, grandson privilege, you know, there's no father, daughter privilege. Right. Um, but there are but yes, there there is attorney client privilege, whether you become a client of that person or not, and it doesn't require an NDA and is not considered a public disclosure and thus the year doesn't start. Good. Yeah, that's good to know. So I'll definitely put your information up so that people can find you. Uh, this is really good information and should be of interest to a lot of the people who are breaking out with these amazing technologies, you know, from formulas to cultivar strains and, yeah. <laughs> and uh, delivery devices and yes. everything else. So, yeah, it's very interesting. But, well, I have to say thank you so much for um, sharing all of this information. It's really been a, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me and uh, look forward to meeting you soon. You are welcome, and I look forward to meeting you as well. Oh, so it is time for us to bring yet another show to a close. Once again, I'd like to personally thank my guest, 
David Pastolsky for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work he's doing, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode. And there you will find his bio along with information about his talk at the CBD Expo and a link to his website. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our partners and radio sponsors, Canisphere Biotech, The Growers Network, and Blue Mountain Energy. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank our theme song composer, Eric Adal, and our production team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for always making us shine. And of course, it goes without saying just how much we appreciate our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, Share what you've learned and make it a great day. Let's face it, indoor agriculture consumes massive amounts of energy. Between cooling high-intensity grow lights and regulating climate in large facilities, electric bills can run a successful grow operation into the red. If this sounds familiar, I can tell you that you need a powerful climate control system that won't drain your green. I'm Eric Riccardi with Blue Mountain Energy. Our state-of-the-art HVAC systems are powered by natural gas and propane, which means you can reduce your electricity use by as much as 80% and get your grow operation back in the black and maximize your growing space. Visit BlueMountainEnergy.com to schedule your free energy assessment and see how Blue Mountain Energy can put that green back in your pocket.